uh, with the church here. Uh, my name is, is Travis, uh, by the way. Uh, I know you got the interview from Scott and Charity. We've known them for a while. You guys, I just want to, before we even get started, I just want to say you guys are incredibly lucky to have them leading your church. I don't know if you know them personally, uh, but they are incredible, incredible people. They're incredible parents. Their marriage is great. Nobody's marriage is perfect, but theirs is an unbelievable shining example for you. He is one of the most pastoral people I have ever met in my life, and Charity is one of the most stable, wonderful, encouraging people that I've ever had the opportunity to know. And I, if you guys don't stop and appreciate that enough, uh, I wish you would. Uh, their, their job is not easy. I get many a call from Scott, and uh, I, I don't know if he's on the verge of tears or what. He thinks so much about the well and about how to reach the city and how to spread God's kingdom and the good news of what Jesus has done for us here. And you guys are so incredibly lucky uh, to have a pastor like that. So I just want to put that out there. You guys have a really, really good crew. Um, also, very awkward moment for me. Uh, I thought I was coming to talk about sex. So surprise to me <laughs> to see that I'm talking about the Bible. So we're going to take quite a detour. Uh, so we don't need the slides anymore. So um, I'd, like, I'd like to talk about a couple things. You don't know me, and I want to let you into my world a little bit. Uh, my, my name is Travis, and I like food. And uh, this has nothing to do with what I'm talking about today, but I ate at Temple Street Diner. Is that a place people eat here? Yep. It is? Okay, I got one yes. Everyone else is looking at me like I just said something bad. Okay, all right. So uh, I went there. I heard very good things about their lobster, Benny, or for those of you who aren't down with the street youth lingo, uh, Benedict. And I went and they were out of lobster, which was very disheartening. And I, I live in, and, and by the way, that was second breakfast. Uh, we stopped at McDonald's before because we knew we couldn't make it the whole 45 minute journey. I mean, that's like a fortnight. And so we needed to eat first and second breakfast, which I've consumed. I'm very happy. And it's this tension that I live with uh, because I know I'm not a small man and it takes a lot of work to keep up these lady lumps. And so I know that like eating isn't good for me, but I love it anyway. But it was cool to get to experience Nashua. I've been to Pressed Cafe. I've been to a couple places in downtown Nashua. And I know you by this church and your eating establishments. That's kind of how I mark my territory is, uh, is learning those. Uh, but it's a tension that I live with because I know that uh, eating uh, obviously packs on uh, the lovely pounds and leaves you with this beast-like physique you see standing before you. Uh, but it's not the only tension I've ever lived with in my life. Uh, I lived with a tension in high school. Uh, we all grow up, with middle school's weird for those of you who have been through that, which I'm assuming is most of you who weren't raised in the backwoods. But um, it's, it's a weird dynamic where you're constantly exploring and learning who you are. And I had a very, very unique tension in high school. Uh, I played football. Any, any, anybody played sports in high school? Okay, so I played football. And I would say this is not a moment to, to shine on past glories because uh, now I'm just a shell of a man. But I, I did well at football. I was uh, first team all state. I was captain of the football team. We went 15-0. and 0. We won a state championship. We just destroyed everyone. I uh, was recruited. Like very, I, I, was, I felt very comfortable in that environment. But here's the tension I lived with. I was also vice president of the Thespian Club. And for those of you who are uncultured enough to not know what a thespian is, let me enlighten you. Uh, that is those of us who, who enjoy the arts. We enjoy acting, uh, the theater. Anybody a theater fan here? Yes, thank you to the four of you who understand culture. So, um, so I, I have been uh, Harold Hill in The Music Man. I've been Nicely Nicely Johnson in Guys and Dolls. I've been Frank Butler in Annie Get Your Gun. I, I enjoyed this very much, but it was a, it's a weird dynamic to carry around to be captain of the football team and vice president of the Thespian Club. Those normally don't go hand in hand, and I never knew, you never really fully fit uh, in either group, right? You go to like a Thespian convention and you go, these people don't look like they get out very much. They don't do a lot of 
extracurricular activity or social things, you know? And it was like, then you go to the football people and you're like, I don't think they know how to put sentences together. And I don't, I don't know that they could draw their name. And so it's, it's a strange tension that you live with in life. And everybody understands what it's like to live with a certain level of tension. And that's kind of what I want to talk about today, because what we're going to tackle is, can we trust the Bible? And I think there's a great deal of tension that goes into this discussion of Bible, because for a lot of us, if we're honest, there's a tension when we talk about the Bible, because some of us were intimidated by it. It's a very large book. I mean, this is very, very tiny writing that I've brought here with no additional notes. This is just the text, right? It's, it's a lot. The reason we have reading plans that go through it in a year is because it's a monster to tackle in less than a year and really glean a whole lot from it. There's a lot of words in here. This is totally for free, but does anybody know the longest book in the Bible, the most words, longest book? Jeremiah, actually. That has nothing to do with anything, but if you are ever on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, if they still even have that show, I don't think Philbin's alive. I'm not sure who's still running that ship, but if that's ever your question, the answer is Jeremiah, but neither here nor there. We, we see this enormous book and we go, man, I don't really know what to do with it, right? We neglect to deal with it. Sometimes it's just this thing that we sort of have that exists, and sometimes we read it, sometimes we look at it, but some of us, we don't have a reason for the hope that we have in it. And I was listening to a sermon by Vody Bauckham. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he grew up in the Projects of LA. He's an awesome Bible teacher. He's incredible. Again, his name is Vody Bauckham, if you want to look him up. But he, he was preaching on why he believes the Bible. And he said something so fascinating. And I want to share that with you. He said, do you ever want to see a Christian squirm? You just need to go through this sequence of three questions. Here's question number one. You ready? He says, okay, Christian, what do you believe about X, right? whatever it is, right? You fill in the blank for X for those of you who understand mathematics, just a variable. What, what do you believe about X? And then he says, okay, then, then you would respond or Christian would respond, well, I believe such and such and such and such. And so then he says, okay, question number two. Why do you believe that about X? Now, most Christians, what, what's our go-to? We're gonna say, I believe it because what? Because the Bible says it, right? Like, well, because the Bible says such and such and such and such about X. That's why I believe it. And he goes, all right, here's the third question, and here's the nail in the coffin. Then you ask him, why do you believe what the Bible says about X? And he said nine times out of ten, and he said, I'd almost say ten times out of ten. That's when, that's when people start to... <laughs> to squirm a little bit, right? Because you go, I, I know what I believe and I know I believe it because the Bible says it. But when you put me in a corner and say, why do you believe what the Bible says about that thing? What credibility do you have? Boom, their fate is sealed. And he said, here's what's really fascinating. Then uh, most Christians, we start to backtrack into one of two answers. One of them we give is, well, that, that's how I was raised, right? Like, why do you believe it? Well, that's how I was raised. Is that good logic, yes or no? No, it's, it's horrible logic. Why? Because what if someone was raised another way? They're going to be fully within their rights to believe this other thing, right? It, it, yours isn't any better than theirs if you just say, well, no, 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 I was just raised that way. It's a terrible, terrible response. The second response you get all the time is, well, it works for me, right? I, it, look, look at my life. It, it works for me. And that's a neat thing to say, and it's sort of that, emotional existential cop-out where you kind of go, yeah, it, it's, it's kind of in my wheelhouse, right? It, it, it rings true for me. We use terminology like that. But the problem with that is, well, what if it doesn't work for them? 
Your own logic has defeated the foundation that you're standing on. And so what I want to do today is really, really focus on the reliability of the Bible itself. And I need you to understand, this is a very different time for us. And, and Scott pointed it out so well. This is, there's definitely an element of preaching that will happen today, but a lot of this is teaching. And I would challenge you, I might take some notes if I was you, not because the information I'm giving is, is genius or wonderful. I mean, this is borrowed information of all these things that have been put together to give us the reliability of the text. But you might want to write some of this down. And if, if you can't keep up with it all, again, it's going to be like drinking from an informational fire hydrant. Uh, feel free. You can, you can email me. You can email Scott. I'm happy to give the notes to you. But I really, really want to build a legitimate teaching case for this. So we're going to have a heavy chunk of information in the middle, and I want you to hang with me, because I want to really release two tensions today. That tension that we live with with the Bible, I want to talk about two things. Number one, I want to talk about the reliability of Scripture. We'll probably spend 15 minutes there just blazing the trail of the reliability of Scripture. Now, normally, I teach this in a four-week class. You have 20 minutes and 42, 41, 40 seconds remaining for us to get through this material. So I, I promise you I will do my best, but it's going to come at you fast. But here's what I, here, let, me, let me tell you the second thing. The reliability of scripture. Second thing, I want to talk about the reason for scripture. And it's all going to land there because re reliability is wildly important. But if you don't understand the reason, the fact that it's reliable is irrelevant. You get me? If you don't understand the reason, the fact that it's reliable is irrelevant. And what I want you to do is this. I, I grew up as a child. I was an only child. And uh, many of you say it was a very lonely childhood. No, I had me and my imagination and all of their friends. And I would stand out in the yard. Is anybody, uh, now that the Marvel comic universe is a thing and there's all these superhero movies, now it's like cool to like comic books. When I was growing up as a kid, it was not so cool to like comic books. But I would stand out in my yard and I would just like pray to God. This is so true. This is a genuine confession here. I would be like, dear God, let there be claws that come out of my, like, please let me be a special mutant. Let me just fly or like scratch. Like I just, I want some abilities. And, and the reason I bring that up is my hope is this, right? I don't know. Anybody seen Wolverine or, or Logan? He's this character. I'm going to sum him up very quickly. This terrible experiment got done to him and he, he got adamantium infused, infused on top of his bones. It made him unbreakable pretty much. His skeleton, his skeletal structure is pretty much unbreakable. And, and that's my hope for Christians today is that we would see that we have a leg to stand on through the reliability of scripture. We have reasons to believe that a sovereign creator put this universe into motion. You're going to go over so much of this. We have legs to stand on. I want to infuse your bones with some type of intense metal that you would have a steel spine and be able to stand up to people who ask questions, not because we win them over with logic, but we let them know that we have a reason for the hope that has been given to us. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with what? Gentleness and what? Respect. Gentleness and respect. We're not trying to beat people over the head with logic. We want to, what, what does the Bible say? What brings people to repentance? The kindness of God. But we do need to understand deeply why we believe what we say we believe. Now, I, we, we can't go any further without at least being on level footing with presuppositions. And so I have two that I need you to understand. Uh, the first one is I believe that truth exists. 
I believe that truth can be known. I believe there are things in this universe that can be shown by history, by science, by archaeology. I believe that truth does exist. I believe it's not out there somewhere as this nebulous thing. It can be known. But I also believe this, and this is wildly important, and I may have to back up for a second, but I believe this is so important because I believe both the philosophical and the existential need for truth. And what I mean by that is it's not just knowledge-based. You can't ignore the way that you feel. The philosophical is great. I have my focus in master's work and in undergrad in philosophy. That's neat. It's fun. It's good. It's all here. But there's a real existential truth about the way that you feel. And Romans 1 speaks to it when Paul says that every man, it's been put into the heart of man. We all long to know how this whole thing works. How this this relationship, the harmony that we see in the universe, how the world keeps going, how what what put gravity into motion, or did it just accident? Like we all have this deep existential feeling desire to know how this all works. And I believe that drives us to truth. Because truth for us can't be just cognitive. And I want to be very clear about this before we jump in. This is not an attempt at indoctrination. I'm I'm not trying to crush you into a certain way of thinking. I just simply want to expose to you today the beauty of God's word that reveals his redeeming work that climaxes in Jesus Christ that lets you know that there is a hope not only for this life but the life to come. My hope is not that you just walk away here believing some words on a page but you believe the one of which all these words speak to which is Jesus Christ who brings salvation. Many of you have questions like, why do we believe the Bible is God's word? Is it reliable? Have 3,000 years of history changed the text in some way? Let me, let me go with this for the sake of time. There's no amount of logic that brings faith. And I need to be so clear about that. This is such an important series for apologetics. But no, logic does not bring faith. The Holy Spirit brings faith. The Holy Spirit can use logic and reason to do that. But our our hope today isn't just to root you in logic. Our hope is to root you in something greater. So let's let's dive in to the reliability of Scripture. Because here's the reality. If this is the Word of God, it demands everything that we have. We would have to be on the same page about that, right? Like if there is a sovereign creator who stands outside of space and time, who spoke all of this into existence, and, and this actually is his Word, right? If he's actually communicated with mankind, this demands everything that we have. Yes or no? Yes. Okay. So let's talk about the reliability of scripture. Again, this is going to come at you fast. So the Bible, what is it? Right? We know as Christians, we're going to believe it's God's word and we'll get to that in a second. But, but what is this book specifically? I'm going to give you a definition that I can give to you later because uh, you probably won't be able to take all this in. But the definition is the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents which report eyewitness testimony that testifies to miraculous events. Again, the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents which report eyewitness testimony that testifies to miraculous events. The word Bible itself comes from the word Biblia, and Biblia does not mean book, it means books. Books. There are multiple books inside of this book. And I know you say to yourself, self, that's pretty obvious, right? I see, but, but I want to break down why that's so incredibly important today. This thing is made up, it's comprised of 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. Does anybody know how many authors made this? 40, at least that we know of. 40 authors comprise this. How many continents was it made on? 
Three. How many languages? Three. This book is a composition of multiple authors from multiple continents in multiple languages all put together in one book that spans over 1,500 years. But the fascinating thing about it is that it all points to the same thing, Jesus. Multiple continents, multiple languages, multiple authors, and it's all pointing to God's redemptive work. The Bible really is broken up into multiple genres and multiple collections. You have the Pentateuch, you have the history, the poetry, the major prophets, minor prophets, the gospels. You have Paul's letters. You even have apocalyptic writing. And you may say to yourself, why does all of that matter? Why does, it, why does understanding an overview of these different genres even matter? Because it informs you how to understand it. You can't read book by book all the same. You can't read piece by piece all the same. Do you read poetry the same way that you read a nonfiction novel? Or do you read a nonfiction the same way that you read a fiction? Do you read a science textbook the same way that you read Thoreau or someone? No, you don't, right? You, you kind of take it based on what the genre is, right? The Bible says things like, in the poetry writings, it says, God is, is a lion, right? Is God literally a lion? No, that's called anthropomorphic language. That's silly. God is, God is not a lion just as the creator, but he's like a lion. And we have to understand these different genres to understand how to interpret this text. But you also have to understand this. There's a meta narrative that goes throughout the Bible, and it's this constant thing you find. You see it in the whole of Scripture, and then you see it again and again and again at work in the life of God's people. You see this narrative of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Cities get torn down. They fall. They get restored by God, right? It's because there's this redemption moment where God steps in and goes, no, you're my people. I'm going to build you back up. And it's this constant cycle all through scripture. You have these two different testaments and it's so amazing how they work together. Over 1,500 years of text. The Old Testament has the beginning of the universe, the condition of mankind, the formation of God's people. And then at the very end, if you've read it, I don't know, it's like a news, I don't want to spoil anything for you, but it promises a savior, right? And then the New Testament, again, I'm, I'm not trying to, to, to keep any surprise innings from you. It says, okay, no need to wait anymore. That's Jesus, right? There's a, there's a promise delivered through Christ. The New Testament is a life teaching death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the establishment of the church, and the return of Jesus. And you go, okay, that's neat. That, that's what it is. But what do Christians really believe about it? What makes it unique and special? And I want to, I really only have time for four things. There's so much more, but four things I think are really important. This is what Christians believe about it. Number one, we believe it is inerrant, inerrant. And that means it's without error, technically, historically, and geographically, right? We leave theology out of it for that one. Inerrant is we believe it is without error, technically, historically, and geographically, we also believe it is infallible, meaning it is without error theologically. What it says about God and our relationship to him is spot on. We believe that wholeheartedly. This isn't some book that takes a pretty good stab at who God is and we just get to fill in the blanks. This gives us, the Bible says, all we need for life and godliness. All that we should know about God and how to relate with him, we can find here in the pages of, pages of Scripture. Third, 
We believe that the scripture was revealed. This is very important because too many people see this as a book of man, as though it was inspired by man for man. That is incorrect. We believe that this book was revealed. The only things we can know about God are the things he has revealed to us. We believe God could have, if he so desired, hidden himself for mankind, a very deist view. He sets everything into motion, steps away and says, have a nice time. But the scriptures don't point to that. He has shown us who he is and revealed himself to us. Fourth, we believe it is inspired human activity that wrote these pages guided by divine influence. We believe it is inerrant. We believe it is infallible. We believe it is revealed. And we believe it is inspired. Second Peter 1, uh, 20 through 21. Do we have these on the screen, by the way? No, okay, no problem, I'm sorry. All right, 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21. Knowing this, what, what happened? Oh, we don't, oh, thank you so much. It's very good. That's good. It's communication. Um, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. If you want to know what the Scriptures are, write Second Peter 1, 20 through 21 down. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We believe the Bible speaks to itself. And then here's the meat of what we're going to hit today. The Bible, why should I trust it? Is it reliable? We obviously don't have time to cover everything or most things, so we're going to focus specifically on the New Testament story. Are we, are we good? Are you still with me? Again, I told you, fire hydrant, so I'm just trying not to spit on you. Uh, I'm, just, I'm coming at you fast. All right, here we go. So we have the New Testament, and it was put together in a New Testament canon. Canon literally means measuring rod. The early church had very specific criteria about what could go into the New Testament. It wasn't some old men all sitting around a room going, man, this sure looks good, pass the beer. This is a very well thought out thing that we have, the New Testament canon. The early church's criteria were as follows. It had to be, whatever went into the New Testament, had to be written by an apostle or a prophet. Or it had to be written by those associated directly with an apostle or a prophet. Third, it had to be in full agreement with the Old Testament. Nothing goes in there that contradicts the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Fourth thing, it had to be confirmed by Jesus, by a prophet, or by an apostle. Let me give you an example of that. This is a really cool thing that scripture does, and a lot of us, we forget how beautiful this really is. Second Peter 3.16. Peter says this, And count the patience of our Lord as Savior. Uh, I'm sorry. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks to you of these matters. These are some things, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other very important final word, scriptures. Peter says, Paul is writing you and People are twisting it just as they do, and he uses the word for Old Testament scriptures and prophecy when he refers to what Paul is writing. 
Peter in the day says what Paul is writing, that stuff's legit. That is the word of God. Paul himself says in 1 Thessalonians 2, and we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Paul recognizes what God's doing is he's revealing in those early years, he's revealing scripture and truth that should be understood. And now this is the part that I'm probably going to jump through pretty quickly because there were a lot of councils and I was going to really nerd out with you over some dates, but here's really what you need to know. We have 25,000 New Testament manuscripts or pieces of manuscripts that date within 60 years of the death of Christ. 25,000 manuscripts from the New Testament or pieces of manuscripts dating within 60 years of Christ's death. Do you know how significant that is? We could reconstruct the entire New Testament outside of 11 verses by quotations from the early church fathers. The first generation removed, that one generation of those early church fathers, we could reconstruct the entire New Testament verse by verse minus 11 verses just from that first generation in their teaching. That's how highly regarded this was. They didn't finish putting all of this together until 397 AD, but they confirmed all of this because it was already being seen and revered as scripture. We have the gospels already confirmed and being taught as soon as 170 AD. Now you say to yourself, self, 25,000 New Testament manuscripts, manu, uh, manuscripts or pieces of manuscripts. Like what, how does that compare to other pieces of literature that we hold dear? So I'm so glad you asked that question, self. <laughs> so Aristotle, does that ring any bells? Yep. Yeah, so Aristotle, the most copies we have of any of his works, 49. And you know how far after the original writing is? The earliest one we can find is 1,400 years after he wrote it. That's crazy, right? Homer's the Iliad. Any, any Greek mythology buffs in the room? Okay. Homer's the Iliad. We have 2,200 copies compared to 25,000. We have 2,200 copies, but you know what's fascinating? Our 25,000 are within the 60 years after Christ's death. This stuff's still getting written. But the Iliad, the best thing we have, the earliest thing we have is 500 years from the original writing. Socrates, you know how many writings we have of his? Zero. 23,000 archaeological digs, and not one of them has contradicted the Bible. We have the works of Josephus, the Roman writer. We have the works of Tacticus, that they talk about Jesus, who he is, that he walked this earth, that he was delivered into the hand of Pontius Pilate. He did these amazing things. Like, you can't refute that Jesus existed. Right? You, you, may be, you may go all in on the New Testament and you may want to nitpick it apart, but you show me one religion on the planet that does not acknowledge Jesus. One. Name one. I challenge any of you because it does not exist. There is not one even small, tiny belief system that doesn't somehow have to have an answer or response for Jesus. He walked this earth. It's a matter of what you do with him. So what we have here that is so fascinating is you see, you go, okay, Jesus walked the earth. Big deal. Maybe he was just a good teacher. Maybe he was just a really nice guy that all these other guys wanted to write about. Think about that for a second. 
It's all well and good about the text, but you say, what about the authors? What's so unique about the Bible is it's written by eyewitnesses in the presence of other eyewitnesses. This junk they're writing is falsifiable. They're putting stuff into circulation that someone could say, no, garbage. Nope, not true, I was there. Nope, not a real thing, right? Because Peter credits Paul, Paul credits Luke. They're all slinging stuff back and forth and everybody's going, no, that's right on. No, I was there. Yes, that happened. These eyewitnesses are writing falsifiable documents in the presence of other eyewitnesses. Think about 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you now stand, but which you, and by which you have been saved. Listen, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed it in vain, Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to, listen, Cephas, that is Peter, and then the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Paul is writing saying, you don't believe me? There are 500 people still walking this planet you can get it from. Here's their names. Here's who you go check on. Here's who you ask. I'm writing this. This is a falsifiable document. Someone proved me wrong because you can't. This stuff's in circulation everywhere. And then you say, that's great. They were all in on this keeping the charade going thing, right? Really? Does it make any logical sense to you that these men, listen to this, the the 11 disciples, we're just going to exclude Judas for obvious hanging reasons, but 11 disciples... These men, do you think they just wanted to keep the lie going? They saw what just happened to their leader. Let's assume Jesus didn't come back from the grave. What leads these other 11? Ten of them were martyred for the faith, and the one that wasn't was John the Baptist. I mean, I'm sorry, John the Apostle. They tried to burn him alive in oil. They tried to boil him. It didn't work, freaked everyone out. They banished him to the island of Patmos where he gave us revelation. He's the only one that didn't lose his life in martyrdom, but I would say things didn't go incredibly well at the end of his life. So 11 of these guys remaining give up their lives for the sake of the gospel. You're telling me they didn't see something kind of unique that their leader just went in the ground and they said well guys here's a good idea let's just keep this thing going and see if we can all uh, meet our maker right that makes no sense these men saw something to write these documents and say I didn't just see it these other 500 said it do you think about the the scripture writers even that are talking about the death of Jesus they go hey Simon the Cyrene carried his cross you don't believe me you go ask Simon you ask him where Jesus is today Like, this is the stuff that the Bible hangs on. And the truth is, if we look at this as a court case, right, if we're really putting God on trial, there's an overwhelming body of evidence, numerous eyewitnesses, early manuscripts in a court case. Are eyewitnesses important? Yes or no? Highly important. Paul says we got a hundred and, I mean, 500 and something of them. We have overwhelming body of evidence, numerous eyewitnesses, early manuscripts. There is total consensus among early believers and church leaders about what should have gone in the New Testament. No argument, no nothing. We could reconstruct, I remind you, the entire New Testament just from the quotes of early church fathers. It would be a clear verdict in favor of the Bible being 100% reliable. You put that sucker on trial, everything, every little box you want to check off, the Bible hits that. 
But none of that matters if you don't understand the reason the Bible exists. That's great. It's a reliable document. That's great. There's eyewitness. That's great. That's a, all that's great. So what I want to close on is this, the reason for Scripture. I'm going to give you one word. It's a Sunday school answer. You ready for it? Jesus. Jesus. I, I'm not here to pull the rug out from under you or give you some brand new creative bizarre truth. The reason for Scripture, the reason it exists, Jesus John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him, and without him, not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not, what? Overcome it. John 5, 39, Jesus is speaking, and he's talking to the Pharisees. He says, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness to me. You think, Pharisees, that you've got all 600 and some odd rules and laws memorized. You can categorize them. You can organize them. You can put them all out. You know, if there was a jeopardy for all the laws, you would beat Alex Trebek. You would win, but you miss the point because they don't point to a neat list of rules and guidelines, Jesus says it points to me. And the reason some of us are so intimidated by the Bible is we look through these pages and all we see is do's and don'ts. We see a law. We see something that is weighted and heavy. And then the moment we mess up, it's there to crush us or push us aside. But I'm here to tell you that the point of scripture is not a law and do's and don'ts. The point of scripture is to show you that you couldn't possibly keep up with all of the do's and don'ts in here. You are unrighteous. You cannot keep up with the law, but there is hope because there is one who did keep up with it and his name is Jesus. And the problem with so many of us is we dig through this word hoping that it's going to give us some good guidelines to live a good enough life that when we reach eternity, there's some sort of weight and balance system where we've done more good deeds than bad deeds and we'll get in. That's not what this Bible points to. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. It is clear, I know you'll talk about it later, but this scripture, when you read it, does not give you the ability to use it as just a legal guideline book for good living. But for us to understand the reason scripture was given, we have to understand the one that it points to. The Bible tells us that God created everything. It was beautiful. It was harmonious. He walked in communion with man and with woman. It was great. And then who screws it up? Man does. Man and woman jack it all up because that's what we do. You give us rules and say, don't press the red button. Listen, I've got a four-year-old daughter. She's going to press the red button every time. You don't have to teach a kid to be unrighteous. Did you know that? Have you ever been in a place where children are present? They're the worst. <laughs> Unrighteousness is in us because we can't uphold this. We are not God. God creates everything beautiful. Man comes along and screws it all up. And here's the thing. This isn't Greek mythology. God is not Zeus sitting off on a corner somewhere of Mount Olympus, hurling lightning bolts, laughing at the demise of man. But instead, man screws up everything. The separation from God and man happens because God demands perfection. Man can't live up to it. And instead of God going, well, there seems to be a chasm, you're all screwed. 
He then says, no, no, here, you have a massive problem, and I'm going to fix it for you by offering my son, Jesus, the best of me. I'm going to let him walk this earth, live the perfect life. I'm going to let him uphold every single thing I expect so that when it comes down to it, you don't have to bring your resume into eternity, but you can trust and believe on the work that was done on your behalf by Jesus Christ, that that work, that resume is what you bring into eternity and say, listen, I'm not a good person. I'm, I'm clear about that, but I believe absolutely that he is. I believe that Jesus is who he said he was. I believe that he died a death for me, and I believe he was raised to life to conquer sin for me. I claim his resume. Thank you very much. I get in. Because this isn't a list of do's and don'ts. It's an entire beautiful manifesto that points to the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ. So this morning, I don't plea with you to worship a text. I plea with you to worship the one whom the text is about. So the Bible's reliable, yes. Again, I could teach four weeks on it, and we'd all have fun, and we'd all get more information, but it's not just cognitive. At some point, you have to create a bridge between the head and the heart. Soren Kierkegaard says reason is not enough, but it's okay that faith informs your reason. Whatever you believe, logic isn't the simple answer. At some point, you have to have faith that all of this is pointing to something greater. And I would plea with you today that that is Jesus Christ. Let's take a moment and pray together. God, we believe your word that you've revealed to us, that you've shown us. God, we believe your truth and your text, but I pray that we would never read it and study it just like we would the Lord of the Rings or whatever, Harry Potter. This is such a unique, such a beautiful book that's not just claiming a story, but it is the true, genuine revelation of your work, of your creation, of your goodness that you've given us your son, Jesus. So Father, I pray today that your Holy Spirit would work. For anyone in this room that does not know who you are, I pray, I pray that your Holy Spirit would reveal it to them. I pray, Lord God, that all of this stuff in them, this feeling, this, this, this cognitive, this, all this unrest, that they know something's out there somewhere, Lord God, I pray that they would see Christianity isn't just some weird crutch for the weak, but we are standing on the foundation of a reliable word that reveals to us your son Jesus and his greatness. I thank you so much much that you revealed yourself to us. I thank you so much that you have given your word to us. I thank you so much that you don't leave us in the dark, but you tell us what you expect. And what you expect is perfection, and you did it through your son Jesus so that we could claim his resume by believing in him, by repenting of sin, and trusting him as Lord and Savior. We love you. We honor you. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.